Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. In this episode, we were honored to bring back our friend Brian McLaren to talk about his new book, Do I Stay Christian? In this new book, Brian addresses a real question which underlies a startling sociological truth. People are leaving Christianity at a rapid pace. In fact, Pew Research shows that today about 64% of people in the U.S. identify as Christian after falling rapidly from a high of 90% just a few decades back. Brian's book takes an unflinching look at the reasons that people might choose to leave Christianity before spending a lot of time on why someone might choose to stay, as Brian has. But you won't find any apologetics here. Rather, Brian looks at staying as part of a broader faith journey, one that can take us out of a simple world of black and white into a new stage of our faith, one filled with paradox and mystery and love. In one of the most compelling and memorable parts of his book, Brian asks, what if you're really trying to change stages, not religions? While not prescribing any particular path for readers, Brian shows how all people of goodwill, including those with doubts and questions and criticisms, can do so much to benefit their institutions and traditions, as well as the world more broadly, if they choose to stay. We think this book does so much good work to help paint compelling reasons for doing so, and to help illustrate a path forward. To give a little background to those listeners who haven't heard Brian before, he's an author and a speaker, an activist, and a public theologian. A former college English teacher and pastor, Brian is a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, just, generous, and working with people of all faiths for the common good. He's a faculty member of The Living School and a podcaster with Learning How to See, which are both part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. We also recommend going back and listening to Brian's first appearance on the Faith Matters podcast in episode number 67, where we discuss his book, Faith After Doubt. We really hope that everybody will listen to this episode in its entirety, and if it resonates, we'd strongly encourage you to read Brian's book. We really think that it has the potential to make life-changing impact. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, Brian McLaren, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to have you back on the podcast. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, This new book, Do I Stay Christian, is really, really incredible, Um, and that's I think that's understating it just a little bit. I, as I read it, I wished so much that I had read it 10 years ago and that so many people that I know had had, had it 10 years ago. But I think that that means that it's going to have a lot of a lot of impact from here. Um, I, I want our, our listeners to know, first of all, that this book is it does address that question very directly. It may not give it may not give an answer, uh, but ex- it explores it from all angles. And it's broken into these three sections, which are essentially no the no section. No, I, I shouldn't or don't stay Christian the yes section, yes, I do. And then a third section, which is if yes, then, then how? And I wanted to ask you first, why, why did you feel it was important to, as a Christian yourself, to include those no chapters right at, right mm-hmm. at the beginning? Well, look, all of us who grew up in religious uh, settings are used to having a kind of bait and switch done to us, which says, oh, let's ask an open-ended question. Do I stay Christian? But if you answer no, we're going to tell you all the terrible things that are going to happen to you and how terrible a person you are to have made that decision. Your exactly. reasons for leaving are not good enough. And uh, I just knew that's not going to help anybody. Um, I, I should add, I don't think I said this explicitly enough in the book. This is one of those things, if I could do it again, I'd add a, just a sentence that would say something like this. 
There are people every day who are being abused, uh, harmed, traumatized by Christian organizations. And that's true of other religious organizations too. And though one of the first rules when you're trying to help someone who's a victim of abuse is you get them out of the abuse, you get them out of the danger. So the fact is some people need to leave for their mental health and well-being and survival. So all that's to say, I think to be fair, we have to say there are good reasons to leave. Um, and I, I would expect anyone who reads the book to be very suspicious of a former pastor if they don't take the no really, really seriously. Yeah. I appreciated the no chapters because I think most of these arguments have crossed my mind before, but I, you, you really went so deep on every chapter. So when you finish no, you feel like completely understood. And so it felt like a real beginning. Like when, when you, then when you start the yes chapters, you really start with this honesty. One of the chapters that I really appreciated in the no section was this, the one that, about Christianity sort of feeling stuck. Mm. And so I wanted to talk about what, what you mean by that. And then maybe specifically, um, how can we, how can you relate to the way that we talk about science and the scientific method? And maybe how would that be useful as it translates to Christianity and religion in general? Sure. Um, well, a couple of people have said they were surprised in the no section that I didn't talk about specific beliefs. And your question helps get to the, the, the reason why. Um, every single discipline of human life, every organization, every academic discipline, it learns as it goes along. So th the idea that some, that a community would have some beliefs that are not helpful or that are outdated or that have been proven false or at least suspect. Um, that doesn't surprise me at all. I would expect that, right? Uh, uh, you know, if you study psychology, we, we've learned things about psychology we didn't know a hundred years ago. And, and in medicine, there are treatments that they used to give for diseases that now we know are the exact worst thing you could do. People were doing the best they could with what they know. But what seems to me to be a problem in many religious communities and in most Christian uh, communities is that we are unable to face our mistakes and we're unable to question some of the things that we've said in the past. It's like we painted ourselves into a corner or or we have doubled down on things so many times that now we would not only have to admit we were wrong, we'd have to admit that we were wrong when we said that we were right, that we were right, that we were right. <laughs> and and so that's what I mean by stuck theology, that we have, that, that we've, uh, that there are, that there is no reason our thinking on some issues could change and improve, except that we've claimed that we're already right. And, and so then the question arises, why is that? Now, look, part of it is ego. Part of it is pride, I'm sure. But part of it also is, if you just look at the struggles that we've had as in the religious world. So anybody who identifies as Protestant, uh, other than Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, 500 years ago, a group of Protestants said, we can have Christianity without having a pope. And, uh, and what's called the magisterium. Um, and so for 500 years, we've been proving that we can have Christianity without a pope. Unfortunately, the way a lot of us did that is by saying, 
you Catholics claim to have an infallible Pope. We have an infallible Bible. Uh, And so now we find ourselves saying, you know what? Doubling down on an infallible Bible to help liberate us from a supposedly infallible Pope might have made sense 500 years ago. It's time for us to become realistic that even if the Bible is infallible, our interpretations certainly are not. <laughs> and yes. uh, and so we have to get ourselves unstuck in, in those different ways. Yeah. And it, and yeah. it seems so easy. I, I love how you say that, you know, in the same way that it would be ridiculous to explain that science is a list of facts it, as opposed to a method for for being curious and seeking new information. I, sometimes we reduce Christianity to this list of facts. And I love the idea yes. that it, what if it was more of an orientation for seeking truth and for expressing love? And it just seems so simple, like such a simple adjustment that would unst- unstick us, you know? You know, I, I often find myself talking with people about climate change and especially to people who deny that climate change is real. And what I've heard people say many times is, oh, back in the 1960s, they were telling us about the danger of nuclear winter. Now they're talking about nuclear warming or global warming. I'm sorry. And and I, and I they seem to think, oh, that shows that science isn't trustworthy because uh, science changes mind. I would say the very opposite. It's yeah. when new data was presented, uh, the scientific community uh, said, you know what our greatest danger is? It's not nuclear winter from nuclear war, although that could still happen if we had a nuclear war. But they're saying it's actually global warming from burning of carbon and fossil fuels. So all that's to say, here, here's the way I would say it. In ancient religious traditions that continue to today, you prove that something was trustworthy by claiming that it never made a mistake. I think in today's world, anybody who claims to never make a mistake makes me suspicious about whether they're trustworthy. I think we gain trustworthiness when we show I'm willing to admit my mistakes. I'm willing to learn from my mistakes. Here are examples where I've done so. That increases my trustworthiness, I think. Well, what about the idea, Brian, though, especially when you take this back to religion, that, and I think there are a lot of religions and a lot of religious people that do this, that think that if they admit a mistake, then it would cause, um, it would cause people that are listening and paying attention to doubt their connection to God. And it's sort of that connection to God through the Bible in some cases or through revelation in other cases that makes them worth listening to in the first place. And so it's, it becomes very difficult for people to admit mistakes. Does that, have you seen that? Absolutely. One of the reasons for this, I would say one of this becomes a symptom and the symptom is that, that unless we prove ourselves and our institution and our tradition to be on some superhuman level of credibility, then nobody has any reason to believe it. Um, In other words, their belief in what we're about requires a superhuman kind of ability. The irony of this is you, it's like you try to, you try to reach, to be an angel and you become a devil. So a a great example of this is uh, in in the Christian, larger Christian religion. Pope Francis was recently in Canada and there he made a public apology 
for the horrors that were committed in the boarding schools against the Native Americans of of Canada. Similar atrocities happened in both Canada and the United States, and they were done by Protestants as, as well as Catholics. But a lot of what, what a lot of people noticed is what Pope Francis didn't apologize for is something called the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a teaching that it came from a, an official letter called a papal bull from uh, from a pope in the fifteen hundred in the fourteen hundreds, who gave permission to the kings first of Portugal, then of Spain, then it was extended to France and other countries gave permission to them to go into the world and conquer the land and steal the lands of native peoples. Well, it was nice that he apologized for those specific wrongs, but he still isn't able to apologize for the deeper wrong because a Pope said it in an official document. And, and so here's the irony you reduce you, you would lose some people's confidence if you admitted that your leader made a mistake but you lose other people's confidence when your leader doesn't admit that that yeah. and and of course we see this happen in politics all the time where some politician is caught in a lie and then they deflect or they deny or or whatever but uh, we sort of wish that our religious leaders would show that humility in the character to, to just say what happened was terrible. We don't want to defend it. We want to learn from that mistake and never repeat it. And can a religious leader retain their, in your mind, can they, can they retain their, their credibility and, and, and a real connection to something transcendent if they, if they do that? Well, I, so I just, uh, I just think uh, I, I grew up, you know, memorizing a lot of Bible verses in my tradition and there's a, a verse in Proverbs that says, whoever covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. So the mm -hmm. irony is, I think there's a whole lot of places in, in, in the Bible that would say, actually, the way to find mercy is to, is to never cover up your mistakes, but, but come yeah. clean. Yeah. Um, wow. but, but I also uh, am aware that that there are systems at play and in some systems it's very, very hard for leaders that leaders have said things about their own authority in the past, which makes it harder for contemporary leaders to tell the truth as they see it. So in a certain sense, they have to keep up the inaccuracies that they inherited. And this is one of the things that I think is going to result in more and more people leaving religious communities like that because not only does it feel dishonest, it also feels dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll just give you an example. So I grew up, you know, in, in a community that claimed an inerrant Bible. Um, well, interestingly, years later, I found out that in the years before the Civil War in the United States, um, people who wanted to defend slavery said, the Bible teaches slavery if you're against slavery, you're against the Bible and you're against God. And I remember thinking when I learned this, I was probably 14, 15 years old when I learned this. I remember thinking, my gosh, I grew up in this religion for 15 years or whatever. I've never heard anybody repudiate that way of thinking. It, they just ignore it because nobody wants to open up that set of problems. Wow. Wow. 
on that note, you, you talk about how religion can, can be a place where you go to reinforce your biases. Yeah. And so can we talk about, I, hopefully everybody's heard your, your podcast, but maybe could you give us a little glimpse at, at the, at the biases that you address on the podcast? Sure. The podcast then, is called learning how to see, by the way, and everyone should listen to it. It's really incredible. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Some years ago I became interested in the subject of bias. And so uh, I started doing a bunch of research in this and, and I, uh, I came up with 13 different biases. I knew that nobody was going to remember 13 biases and they'd be totally overwhelmed. So I tried to at least alliterate them and come up with a way to describe them. But, uh, just to mention a few, uh, the most general bias is called confirmation bias. And that bias states that our brains are efficient and they would rather not have to rethink everything every day. And so what our brains tend to do is if information comes in that fits in with and confirms what we already think, we welcome it. And if it would require us a lot of work to rethink what we already think, we tend to let it bounce off of us and we reject it. It's not that we think about it and reject it. We subconsciously, and maybe subconsciously isn't the right word, faster than we're aware of, we, we reject it. Um, so that's confirmation bias. Another is community bias, that if I'm a member of a community, it is very hard for me to accept an idea that will get me kicked out of the community that I value belonging to. So, And, and if I want to belong to a community, I'll find it easy to accept the beliefs of that community. Uh, so that's uh, community bias. Another is called competency bias. Um, this is a really interesting one. Um, we are incompetent to know how competent we are because we don't know how much other people know. So for yeah. example, right. if I'm really ignorant, I don't think I'm ignorant. I think I'm yes. average or above average. So I don't have any idea that there are other people who know so much more than I do about this subject or that subject. On the other hand, even if I'm very knowledgeable, I don't know how little other people know, I consider my knowledge to be above average. We all think we're above average. But, yes. um, and, and so I might really be competent, but because I don't know how incompetent other people are by comparison, I don't think that I'm competent. So that's called competency bias. And it's basically an inability to assess my own competence. Am I an expert? Am I a beginner or, or whatever? I can mention some others if that'd be helpful too, but those are just a couple of examples. Yeah, those are perfect. Those are perfect examples. That last one, which I believe formally is called the Dunning Kruger effect. That's it. Is, yes, is really once you once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And it's <laughs> but it's so it's so common to think that you're you're either good at something or that you understand something. Yes, and I've noticed it in myself so often since learn since learning about it. I've <laughs> I started taking tennis lessons last year, thinking that I was a reasonably competent tennis player, <laughs> and very quickly was disabused of that notion. Um, and it's, it, but it's, I think it, it's definitely a, a surge of humility when you sort of fall yes. off that, I believe, yes. I believe they call it Mount stupid. And you, you get into, <laughs> you get into that trough where you realize how, how incompetent you are and you may yeah. never climb up back to, back to competence, but at least, at least there's some, at least there's some humility. <laughs> some humility so, yes. so how do you challenge those though? I mean, what that illuminated for me is like everything I think is just actually based on my biases. How would you, how do you ever get past all of these different ways that your biases affect you? 
So I'm curious how you do that, you know, individually, but also as a community of faith, like how do you work together to not just be living out your biases weekly? Yes. Well, especially because community bias is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And and in a sense, what community bias is, is a kind of social confirmation bias. We like to hear what we already think when we're together as a group and we don't like things that unsettle us. Um, so, um, Aubrey, I, I think the first thing, this is one of the reasons why I think it's useful to understand to even just to gain the information that there are these very definable biases that we can see again and again in ourselves and in others. Because what that tends to do is it makes us realize that common sense isn't that common. <laughs> in other words, that there's a uh, there there might be common sense out there, but there's also common ignorance or or shared ignorance. And and when you realize that, I think it humbles you. And if you're the kind of person who prays, it might even make you understand the value to pray for wisdom. In other words, the act of praying for wisdom is saying, I acknowledge that I'm not already all that, you know, and, and it, it makes, gives you a desire, um, you know, help me see, help me see. I need to see, I need, it, it makes you be careful. I better not just accept an idea because somebody I like has, has that idea, or I shouldn't just reject that idea because the person who told it to me is so different from me. Um, so I think that's a start, but I yeah. really like the other thing you said, Aubrey, and that is how can our communities help us in this? And again, this is where many of our religious communities struggle because it's not a level playing field. There are certain things, there are certain conclusions that we want everybody to reach, whether they actually reach them or not. We want them yeah. to at least act like they've reached them. And but I think there are ways that our communities can at least acknowledge and aspire to the desire for truth. And that's not just the truth that we already think, but it's it's a willingness to grow. One of the ways that faith communities, I've experienced that they do this, is when people do kind of what you guys do on your podcast or what I'm trying to do in my book. When we tell the story about, I used to think of it this way. Mm. But then this happened to me. I could no longer think of it that way, honestly. And here's how I changed. Those yeah. story, that storytelling, I think, is really important yeah. in a community. That, that community by, oh, sorry, Aubrey, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, like, is it, is it possible that you can just have a healthier community bias that, that actually kind of reinforces mm-hmm. better norms? Or is, it, is that always something to be resisted? Well, so I, I would say when we speak of the scientific method and the scientific community, first of all, people need to know that scientific communities are made up of human beings and they have these biases too. Um, for example, one of the biases is called cash bias, meaning it's very hard to believe something if it will cost you money <laughs> to believe it. In other words, if you'll lose customers or lose donors or lose clients, if you believe this, it makes it harder for people to to change your view. Well, look, that applies to scientists who are trying to get funding and uh, and so on. So th- these are human problems. But the idea in in uh, science and in higher education, for example, of having peer reviewed articles. What it means is, before you get to publish something, you have to have other professionals in your field look it over and say, 
hey, you messed up on this. Hey, your your research methodology was faulty in this. Hey, you asked this question, but you forgot to ask this other question. And and all of those things, in a certain sense, it it can be painful to have your peers critique your work. But for the community at large, it helps us make sure that we're not cutting corners, taking shortcuts, or selling out uh, for a bias. Yeah. As you guys were talking about it, the the community bias really sticks with me. And it's such a tough one because it's it's biologically, you know, built into us. I mean, the the search for truth is almost is almost a luxury, you know, in compared to in comparison to survival. And all yeah. of us, if we feel like we need, I mean, again, this is just part of our who we are as as humans. But we feel like we need to be a part of the group in order to in order to survive, and that that can take priority over some you know, it can be seen as a high-minded sort of objective search, search for truth. And so that's a, for me, that's a very tough one. It, it reminds me of a very tender, beautiful moment that I'll never forget it happened to me when I was in my probably early twenties, mid twenties. Um, I was a graduate student and uh, there was a, a graduate student in my, uh, at my university who I met at a party and we were just sitting together at the party and she was a Muslim woman from an East African country and she was covered. Um, and, uh, and we were just having a polite conversation. She was a new student at my university, a new graduate student. And I, I was sincerely curious to learn about Islam from her. And so I would ask her a question and she'd answer, ask her another question. I thought we were having a, a wonderful conversation because I was learning a lot. And then finally she said, I'm sorry, I have to end this conversation. And I thought, oh no, I've offended her. What? I said, I'm sorry, what, what's wrong? She said, your questions are making me question things that I already believe. And if I were to question these beliefs, I would be kicked out of my family and I would bring shame to my family. And it was so interesting first that she, she was totally transparent with me that that's what was going on. You know, mm -hmm. I, I would, if I question any of these things, I will lose everything. And I, I'll just never forget. It wasn't like she was angry at me and it was just more like, I can't handle this. I just have to end this conversation. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, wow. well, man, I mean, that's such a, that's such a real feeling. And it's not, it's obviously not just, just Islam. And I think, I mean, the framework that you, I mean, maybe we should sort of start moving into the yes chapters and even the how, the how mm -hmm. chapters, but the framework that you give uh, in faith after doubt is really relevant to this sort of showing that there, there actually can be, and it's, and, and this is again, speaking from a somewhat a position of privilege where we're not in a community that will radically shun us, but there you show that there is something good still to be had on the other, on the other side of simple yeah. black and white belief. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, as you know, in my book, Faith After Doubt, I, I've been interested in, in kind of the psychology of faith for several decades. And, and there have been a number of theorists who, who've talked about different stages of human development and stages of faith development. And so in my book, Faith After Doubt, I offered a, a synthesis of a, a number of these theorists. And then I summarized that whole book in one chapter uh, in Do I Stay Christian? Because it's felt relevant to this question. And the simple overview is, uh, and again, this is taking a lot of people's very sophisticated and nuanced work and offering a kind of uh, short version of it, but that we begin in simplicity, which is 
the world is divided into two categories. It's a dualistic stage of life, us, them, in, out, right, wrong, good guys, bad guys, friend, enemy, that sort of dualism. Um, and then some of us stay in simplicity our whole lives, but some of us uh, move into complexity where we realize, oh, you know what? Life isn't quite that simple. So you have to learn how to play by different people's rules and when you're with your own family, you might talk this way, but when you're with somebody else's family, you might talk this way. And when you're on the job, you might talk that way. And in a college classroom, you might talk this way and you learn how to negotiate. I call that pragmatism, moving from yeah. dualism to pragmatism. And then I think many people stay there their whole lives. More and more people, I think, move to what I call perplexity, stage three. And that's where we start We saying, oh, but hold it. A lot of those ideas that I was taught, they're really hurting people. And I shouldn't just tolerate them. I've got I've to scrutinize them and maybe challenge them. And, and now how do I know what's true? And uh, uh, it, it really resonates with what you said a few minutes ago, Aubrey. Well, hold it. If I question that, do I just question everything? And that courageous work of, of saying, I really care about the truth and it's making me uncomfortable is yeah. what I mean by perplexity. And then I think some people stay there their whole lives, but I think more and more of us at younger and younger ages are ready to move into the fourth stage that I call harmony or solidarity, where we begin to say, well, it's where we say, of course, some people think that way. That's what they were taught. And confirmation bias was in play. In other words, we, we aren't putting people down. We're in a certain sense, accepting and understanding that we're all human beings in complicated situations trying to figure out how to make it. And, and we have, yeah. we, and, and, and it doesn't mean we say everybody it's all fine, but what we, it, it allows us to have compassion on people yeah. where they are. Yeah. I think my favorite part of the book is where you introduce this idea that maybe if you're in a place where you're feeling frustrated by your faith community, what if, what you really want to leave is not your religion, but your faith stage. And it, yes. is that the impulse that you're recognizing? And that just lit me up. Like I really resonated with that. And so what I wanted to ask you is, you know, if you, to someone who wants to stay in their community for, for any number of reasons, they want, this is the place that they're going to, that they want to keep expressing faith. Then what advice do you have for, for, for them? if there's a disparity between their face stage and maybe the face stage that the community sort of champions. And I think maybe you talk about somewhere that, that churches really thrive in simplicity and complexity. And so outside of those two, it can start getting really uncomfortable, but is it possible to stay and thrive if, if your face stage is not the same? Um, so I think it, it is possible. Uh, it reminds me of a passage in, in the New Testament where Paul says, as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with everyone. In other words, there are ways for you to be tolerant of people being at different places. But what tends to happen, uh, uh, someone who's written about this, who I love and respect so much, his name is Parker Palmer. He A, a lot of teachers know Parker Palmer because he's written about the, the high calling and vocation of being a teacher. Um, the Courage to Teach is just this wonderful book. Um, but Parker Palmer says that in a community, when we start to think our community may be wrong about a few things or our, our community may be only seeing part of the picture, I'm starting to see that differently than my community. At that point, he says there's like a little division between the public us that we show and the private us that's thinking a little differently. And when the pain, when, when the tension between the public expectations of me and the private reality of me is too big, 
when we say, I can't live with this division anymore, I feel dishonest, we go public. And when we go public, uh, very often other people have been having the same division and they find us and we find them. And we say, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one. And he said that forms what he calls uh, communities of critical conversation, where critical conversations happen and where it becomes safe to talk about things that you might not be able to talk about in in the larger group. And um, and so I think that's what often happens is that people find a safe place with, it might be a few people in my congregation, or I might have to find somebody, you know, in another congregation far away, but we find each other. Frankly, I think that's a huge part of what podcasts are doing right now is they're helping people find each other and in a sense, eavesdrop on conversations that it would be very hard to have in public and in person uh, in many of our communities. Yeah, that's interesting. There's another, there's another chapter in the yes chapters where you ask the question and it, it relates to this idea of like which community or communities we belong to. But you asked this question, where else would I go? Uh, mm-hmm. Having obviously given that question a lot of thought, what, what's tough about trying to find a quote unquote perfect religion or a perfect yeah. community? Yeah, this is the this is one of the 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 thing that comes out in a couple of chapters in that second session in that section in that yes section. So if let's imagine I say to myself, I think m- my community is wrong about this and this and this, and so we're going to leave that community and form a new community where we are right. Um, uh, and we're right about this, this, and this that those guys are wrong about. Well, you can almost predict what's going to happen. Uh, you have children, you have grandchildren. Somebody's going to come along and say, our group is wrong about this, this, and this. Um, and suddenly we will be in the position of uh, s- suddenly saying, no, no, we're right. We're right about what we broke off from that other group about. And then they'll say, well, we're right about what we break. And you realize you create this sort of cycle of I'm righter than you. Um, and the irony of that is it's perfectly understandable, but the people who think they're right are often the people who do some really terrible things. Mm. Um, uh, they tell the stories about how badly they were treated by the other people who didn't accept them. And then they're unable to see how badly they treat people. Uh, because in a certain sense, we see ourselves as innocent victims and we aren't able to see ourselves as even capable of harming other people. We're the innocent victims. We, we couldn't be hurting anybody. So that's just a common pattern. It, it happens thousands of times through history. You can just see it play out again and again. Um, and so the, another way that I describe it in the book is I say that in the desire to break away from people who we consider corrupted or, uh, uh, you know, who lack innocence, we create what my friend Nadia Boltz Weber calls a cult of innocence. And in our cult of innocence, here's the irony. We start playing a game where we could actually do great harm to prove our own innocence. Mm. Um, and we find ourselves, and again, these are patterns that you can see again and again. So, yeah. Do you, do you have any examples of, 
uh, where maybe a, a cult of innocence type of mentality has happened in, in history. Sure, so sure. I, well, I, I love that portion of the book so much that I want to I want you to give you a chance to hammer it home a little bit more. Sure. Well, let's talk about in American history. Um, a lot of us were taught that the pilgrims were people seeking religious freedom because they were being persecuted by the Church of England. They were called separatists they were, or Puritans. They were persecuted in England. And so they got on ships and came over to, uh, you know, Massachusetts and so on and established uh, colonies. Um, the irony is they saw themselves as victims of the oppression of the Church of England that didn't allow them freedom of religion. What did they do when they got to New England? They began oppressing the native peoples who they called savages and they stole their lands, considered them subhuman. And it's like, how could you be so stupid? Well, it's easy because we see ourselves as victims. We're innocent victims. We couldn't do anything wrong. And uh, we could, it's just this weird kind of self, almost like a self hypnosis or, uh, yeah, self deception that is very, very easy to happen when we, whenever we play the victimization card. Now, look. People really are victims of other people's harm. But when we define ourselves that way, it's very easy to perpetuate the very thing that harmed us. Yeah, I really appreciated that because we talk a lot about how it, there's this temptation always to throw rocks at the house, you know, to tear something down. Like that feels like a relief to sort of separate yourself. And so yeah. I liked being able to ask myself, like, is that what's happening right now? Do I want mm -hmm. to join the cult of innocence? And that's why I want to walk away from this. So yeah. from the outside looking in, what would you say to Latter-day Saints who are recognizing maybe issues that are, are legitimate issues that, and they're asking themselves, do I stay or do I go? I would love to just hear what you would tell someone who's kind of on the fence for good reasons. Yeah. Well, um, I, I should say first, uh, Aubrey, that you and you, Tim, ha have, you know, uh, through our friendship, I think you've helped me better understand those challenges um, that are that are faced. And and I grew up as someone who grew up in a fundamentalist Christian setting. I faced a version of it in my own background. And then I would meet people from other denominations that were very different from mine. But I saw the same kind of sociology at work. Each one is unique. The issues are unique. The intensity is varies, but th there really were um, similarities. In, in terms of what advice I'd give, I suppose the advice I give is just what you're doing uh, and what we're doing right now. We need places where we can speak openly and safely. We need places where we, where people care about us as individuals and where people dare to believe that God is not as vindictive and anxious as some religious people can be. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a famous sermon in early American history by this Puritan uh, named Jonathan Edwards. It's called sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it is a sort of the, the archetype of fire and brimstone preaching. Yeah. But I think what's in some ways more scary than falling into the hands of an angry God is falling into the hands of angry religious people. <laughs> and and yeah. so this is where to believe in the love and mercy of God, I think, helps us to then maybe 
not be so afraid of people. Yeah. Can I ask you, I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but you really changed our perspective so much when, with faith after doubt and this idea that, you know, what if faith didn't have to express itself as a list of correct beliefs? What if it, it could express itself as love? And so I would just love to hear you, you say like, what is the point? What is the point of, of religion in general? Like yeah. if, if it's uh, not having the most correct belief. So let me offer two very high altitude responses to okay. that question, Aubrey. The first one is that we human beings have brains and our brains are very complicated and our brains torture us. Um, uh, and, uh, and our brains torture us in different ways. Some of us beat ourselves up with depression. Some of us beat ourselves up with perfectionism. Some of us have an incredible ability to procrastinate and not get things done. And then we beat ourselves up for not getting them done. Some of us work constantly and we exhaust ourselves and other people and our brains are just driving us. And I think a huge part of what religion does in general is it it's, it's a way of saying, Hey, at some point, instead of complaining about how bad the, everything is out there, we ought to look at maybe it's our own way of thinking. Maybe it's what's going on inside of our own minds and hearts. When I say brain, I mean our mind and our heart. Maybe we need to have some intentional development of what happens inside, you know? Um, so that's on an individual level. And then on a group level, when you have all of these people whose minds can go in a hundred different directions, we can do some pretty terrible things to each other. And so if you could imagine wise, mature, caring people saying, we better help individuals and families and communities learn how to get along with each other and learn how to avoid when possible and manage when necessary the, our, our conflicts. Suddenly you realize if we were to get rid of all religion today, we'd have to recreate something tomorrow to help people deal with that internal conflict and our social con conflict. And one of the ways we do that is through rituals or practices where we learn to calm ourselves, where we learn to focus ourselves. And one of the ways we learn that is by interacting with stories that help us understand what's going on in our lives. And that's, so those would be super high altitude. Yeah. What might you say to someone who's hearing this and maybe feeling inspired and like, sort of a renewed energy for staying in a, in a community where they've been wondering if they can stay, yeah. but that community does still value. And maybe they're feeling that pull, like you're talking about out of, you know, out of complexity and perplexity into, and they're fi finding themselves drawn toward harmony, but the community that they're a part of does really, and that they want, want to stay a part of does really value simplicity and, and complexity. Yes. How, yes. how does that person exist in that, in that setting? Yes. So uh, I'm I'm really glad you asked that, Tim. Let me give a very simple answer and then try to tell a story that might illustrate it. But the first thing you have to do is you have to take adult responsibility for yourself. Mm. And you have to say, I am giving myself permission to belong here and to love these people, even though the written documents and the authority figures don't approve of me. Um, and, and, and we have to do that inside of ourselves. And it usually helps us to do that, to find even just a couple of other people 
with whom we can be honest. We dare honesty. We experience acceptance. And now it's almost like we create this little zone. So there's a really famous story in the gospel where a bunch of religious, zealous men capture a woman who in the act of adultery, of course, where the guy is, is never told. They drag her, throw her down in front of Jesus. Actually, no, they don't throw her down. They make her stand presumably naked in front of Jesus and ask, what should we do? And now they're going to catch him. She is a pawn. They use her as a pawn in another political game that they're playing. What's so interesting is Jesus, in a sense, humiliates those leaders who want to humiliate her. He forces them to see their own. He, he forces them to make a choice. Are they going to be even bigger hypocrites or are they going to drop this uh, yeah. lynching because they want to kill her? And uh, people can read this story in John 8. I'm sure most people are familiar with it. But what's interesting is he says to the woman, who condemns you? And she says, nobody. Uh, and and w- Which is interesting. Those other people don't condemn. See, those other people are gone. They're not here to condemn me. They still will condemn me over there, but they're not here right now. Mm. And in your presence, I don't feel condemned. Uh, and And then he says, okay, well, you know, get on with your life, go and sin no more. But what ends up happening is she's given permission to be, she doesn't have to cover up that she's had some failures and problems in her past, but she just experienced forgiveness from a fellow Jew. And uh, I just feel like this is part of what it means for us to play Christ to each other is where we, in a sense, then get to say, look, I know those other people condemn you, uh, but we've, they're out of the way right now. In this little private moment, I don't condemn you. And 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 I I think that kind of, I call that a space of grace. And in spaces of grace, I think we can say, look, um, those guys who are about to stone you are not the only members of our religion. I'm a member of our religion and I accept you and I don't condemn yeah. you. So here we are, you know. Thank you so much. I, I just can't tell you how much I love that. Just, that feels exactly, that feels, that's been our experience. And just having little, little spaces of grace is enough to make it feel like you really belong, I think. So, yeah. all right. Well, thank you so much. Yes, Brian, Love your work. Book. I mean, it's inspiring as always. You, you keep topping yourself somehow with each of these, <laughs> with each of these successive books. Um, well, just I, can't yeah. tell you how much we appreciate it. Well, I can't tell you how much I enjoy uh, getting to talk with you. And I have respect for the good work you're doing and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And a big thanks to Brian McLaren for coming on the podcast. Again, his book is called Do I Stay Christian? And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and we really appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.